You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and it is a madhouse, a madhouse, and I'm so excited to be here with none other uh, than Zachary Fooling. Zachary, welcome to the madhouse. Hey, what right do you have to be here hosting a podcast? You're not an ape. I I know, I know, I you know, but I've just... We're going to call this uh, the uh, pirate radio, human pirate radio, uh, (laughs) for those who may or may not be able to listen. Um, I don't even know if we're in a place that has radios at this point, but uh, we are going to dive all the way back um, to 1968 and talk about the original Planet of the Apes films, which I'm so excited to do, and such an iconic film. Before we get there, of course... Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, right now, uh, we are running a little uh, contest, and, and it's if you are one of the next 20 people to review us on Apple Podcasts, you'll be entered to win a really cool Spider-Man Across the Universe poster. Uh, I'll send that out to you. Now, you do have to be in the U.S., so it's in the U.S. store, uh, but Hit us up with a star rating review, uh, and of course, it has to be a written review so we can call you out, uh, but do that, and you could win the poster. We'd love to give that to you. Of course, you can subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, at The 602 Club. We're also on Instagram, at The 602 Club TFM. You can find us online at Trek.fm. You can find the entire network over at Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. There's a listeners-only discussion group there. You can search Babel in the search field of Facebook, and you can find us. Um, we would love to have you interact with listeners from all over the world about the different shows that are happening. Uh, and you can also, of course, uh, support us over at Patreon, patreon.com slash trek.fm. It's a great place to go to make sure that all of the shows that you love here on the network keep coming to you. Uh, and, you know, we're uh, we're not necessarily where we'd love to be uh, with that. We could definitely use your help. So, again, go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and become part of our team. So I'm very interested, Zach, to see where you kind of entered the ape house. Um, what was your, you know, first experience with this series? And, it, and, and, and knowing, too, of course, that we've had... Uh, films that have come out more recently as a part of the series were you introduced to those first did you watch this first i mean how did you come to to know the series yeah i have to confess that i have a completely unadulterated uh view of this movie i've never watched any of the sequels none of the sequels that followed this movie i've never watched any of the modern versions of planet of the apes i've never seen anything but the original and i've only seen that a couple of times i remember watching this film Probably, I don't know, circa 1991, 1992. I just caught it on cable. I was, you know, probably 13 years old when I first saw it. And I haven't seen it since until yesterday when I rewatched it to record this uh, this podcast episode. Um, I know it's a classic and I feel I feel sort of bad. Uh, I feel like my geek uh, street cred is going downhill for saying that. I know it's a classic for a lot of people, but it's just not something I, I remember not finding it particularly interesting at the time. And I'm I'm a little concerned, frankly, that my perception of it hasn't changed very much <laughs> in rewatching it. I found parts of it really, really interesting, uh, sort of philosophically and especially sort of historically, given things going on at the time in the late 20th century. But um, you know, I I actually found it a little bit of a tedious movie. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what your your take on it is and uh, how many times you've watched it. And is this a go-to movie for you? Is does it resonate with you in some way? Uh, uh, I, I will say before, before I let you respond, I think. Um, you know, what I, what I like about it, of course, is the social commentary, right? This is a commentary on the human condition and the danger of humans uh, 
destroying themselves, uh, uh, you know, and with with some other nuances thrown in, things like the the bit on on evolution and religion, and it's like a modern Scopes trial in reverse. <laughs> um, so those kinds of things I find really really interesting. But there there are similar movies that I think I found a little more interesting, like uh, Silent Running comes to mind as a kind of a movie with an uh, 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 environmental message, for example, you know, humans might do themselves in and it, it's a futuristic story set in space. And I think I just, it, it falls into a category that other movies fall into that I find a little more engaging than this one. I find this one a little tedious. So I'm looking forward to diving in and seeing what we can, what we can dig out of it. But uh, I'm, I'm just curious, is, is this a, is this a really like a classic movie for you? Like you love this movie or is this something that you're kind of like, ah, uh, was don't know much about it. Let's watch, let's watch it and talk about it. Yeah, no, this is this is an interesting thing for me uh because I actually didn't see this until um probably 15 years ago and you know the Rise the Planet of the Apes came out in 2011 mm-hmm. and it was on uh home video and and streaming release and everything in the sense of like you could rent it and I remember uh, watching it with some friends of mine, uh, and we saw that movie, and none of us had seen the original Planet of the Apes, and that movie, after watching it, we immediately actually, on iTunes, we went and rented the original so we could see it, um, mm-hmm. because we it, it piqued our curiosity. Uh, and so that's how I got introduced to the Planet of the Apes series. It was actually through Rise of the Planet of the Apes, um, and, uh, and then, of course, I all those uh, subsequent films that they did, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, War for Planet of the Apes. We've talked about all of those here on the 602 Club, but we'd never talked about, you know, the original. And I haven't actually seen any of the other films in the original series. Yeah, they did four others, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of Planet of the Apes, and Battle for Planet of the Apes. And I've actually never seen any of those. Um, I've only seen the original in this run. Yeah, these are a little before our time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That and just, you know, um, I hadn't necessarily heard like great things about what came after uh, this original film. And so uh, I just have never gone back and and rewatched those. But, you know, this is one where it kind of stayed with me and, you know, I I thought was a really um, interesting film. Um, What's what was fascinating to me was doing just some some research. I, I watched the behind the scenes for this, and I read some. There's a great book by J.W. Rinsler, but I, that I'm hoping to get, who did a bunch of the behind the scenes books for the original Star Wars films, and I'd love to get that and read that because there's a there's a really interesting behind the scenes of all this. But really, this was based off of a novel uh, that came out in 1963. Uh, by Pierre Boulet. Uh, he's a French uh, author. He also wrote uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai. And so I just was going to, I know neither of us is real familiar. I don't think either of us has read that book, but there were a few changes made. And I wanted to just kind of see what you thought of those changes here for the movie. If If you felt like if they had been able to kind of stay with the original source material if you would have if you felt like it would have made it better because one of the biggest ones is that the apes were put in a more primitive society uh, so that they did not have to create futuristic societies new types of vehicles technologies and really to the to reduce the cost of the film uh, because they came into um, a place where this was much more akin to like 20th century and maybe a little bit beyond uh, in the book. And so I-, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you feel like it would have been more interesting if they had been able to pull that off? Or do you feel like what they're able to do here works? I think this was probably the right choice. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, on the one hand, I find it wildly implausible that after only a couple thousand years, there wouldn't be more remnants of human civilization around in some way, shape, or form. So I just, I found that implausible right off the bat. Um, I like the earthy aesthetic of the movie. Um, that's one thing I, I remember the sort of the visual imagery of the movie from the first time I watched it. It has these kind of just stark brown tones throughout the whole movie. And I, and I think that works really well. The movie has a fairly coherent aesthetic as a result. Um, 
I mean, I just find it implausible that, you know, there wouldn't be, you know, some remnant of a skyscraper somewhere <laughs> uh, a little more visible. But, you know, how could you do that, though? Because if they showed that, you couldn't save the surprise ending uh, for the surprise ending. It would be a significantly less memorable of an ending if they had spoiled it early in the movie with, with showing more, more uh, you know, uh, remnants of human technology. Mm-hmm. Unless it was literally right. ape technology. But right. it's just a, such a weird... Uh, web to, to untangle to figure out how to make that work on screen i think i could see why they would avoid that I, I was intrigued and i didn't know this until until uh yesterday when i was doing a little bit of research i didn't realize that rod serling wrote the original screenplay for yeah, the movie. yeah and rod serling from from rod serling from the twilight zone of course for everyone who didn't recognize the name name rod serling um and the, the whole movie strikes me as kind of a twilight zone episode <laughs> this, is, this yes. is exactly the yeah. kind of thing you would expect from rod serling here's a weird weird setup you get drawn into the middle of it weird things happen there's some drama and then there's a surprise ending like you would get at the end of a twilight zone episode so this strikes me as kind of a, a proto twilight zone movie yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting because you were talking about the idea of, uh, you know, would it be plausible? Uh, and I I was trying to think back specifically because you see as the ship is sinking that the actual time that they have been gone is like thousands of years and not just like what they thought was like 700 years. Yeah. There's like the year 4,000 or something. Yeah. Or the late it's 3, like, uh, something it's like, like it, yeah, it's like 39 something. I can't remember the exact date, but it's, it's a really long time. So with what we know of the apes of their history going back, you know, uh, about 1200 years and the fact that the amount of time that they've been gone and what you then like put into your brain in the sense of like with all those pieces of information, you're like, okay, humanity must have completely nuked themselves to death. And that's what led, you know, I mean, worse the, than any Chernobyl. I mean, right. Exactly. Chernobyl still exists, exactly. Right? This is a bad, yeah. bad wiping out of humanity. It, yeah. It, yeah it, in fact, it, it almost seems as though basically mutually assured destruction happened. And what was left is, you know, something to which then allowed, apes to so for me i don't find it quite as implausible with the the information um but i do i i agree with you i think that there's something really interesting actually about being in this place where it almost feels as though the apes are at the part of society that is you know between like right at the gilded age right you know they've got horses and carriages they don't they don't really you know they don't have um railroads or anything like that um like late, kind of, late medieval early enlightenment yeah time yeah, period? yeah. Kind of you, you know think? even mm-hmm. that but except for the fact that they have guns you know so it's like <laughs> you know it's it's this weird connection or and conglomeration of of, of things that they do have um which i, I think is really interesting and so i i think for the most part, what I was reading, and I went and did some reading about the the book and everything, and I think that the script actually does a pretty good job of adapting what was in the book to create what's going to be more successful on screen uh, and, of course, allow them to actually make the film because, you know, there's at this point in time, one, science fiction movies aren't a big deal. Um and uh, no, they're like B movies, right? I yeah, mean, they're not, exactly. They're not great at the time, not taken no. seriously. At least. Um, and so, you know, Alan Jacobs uh, coming in and wanting to do this film, um, you know, what's really cool is he actually ends up partnering with somebody who becomes uh, pretty well known in, in film as well. Um, and Richard Zazek, um, who would also uh, be a part of Jaws. Um, and so adapting another famous book into a uh, a film and so um and would become a, a you know a big deal in hollywood i mean he he would do all sorts of different types of movies going forward and so this was um you know this was this was something that was a a big risk for them uh to do in the first place so i i think they did a pretty good job on that now you know, uh, one of the things that really kind of struck me about this film is that, you know, as we follow our human characters and, and really the only ones we get to spend any time with uh, and really do a lot of the talking uh, are Landon 
and Taylor. And of course, Taylor's the main character. Um, but it was interesting to, to me to dis, to see what they they you know were saying drove men at that point in time, which is you know when this movie comes out, it's it's the the late sixties, um, and I, I you know philosophically I thought it was interesting. You know, for Landon, he's been the golden boy um, in NASA and his his job, and he really has this fear of like not living up to his reputation. Uh, and that's what drives him to go on this mission. Even though, what's strange is that everybody he knows will be dead when he gets back. So that's a little <laughs> weird. Um, and 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 then on the other side, and and the thing that really struck me was Taylor, and he represents that completely disillusioned man who he's out there because he says. There has to be something more than man. There's got to be something better than man. Because, you know, for him, he he sees the, the world as we had made it in that point in time to be kind of purposeless, pointless. You know, there didn't really seem to be community uh, that, that he could find. You know, relationships and sex have become these just meaningless things, you know, um, and he has lost all ability to find fulfillment in this world and he's searching for something else. And that was just a really fascinating thing because obviously I think it also fits with where we go in the seventies, um, and how many people were feeling. I think for me, Taylor represents something like you know, it's kind of a corny phrase, but man's search for meaning, maybe something like, uh, like I uh, <laughs> think of the, the title of Victor Frankl's book, you know, man's search for meaning or something to that effect. Like he's, he, and he also, I think represents the, um, malaise of modernity, right? Look at all these conveniences we have. We can, we, uh, but you know, what, what's interesting is we haven't solved any of the problems, right? <laughs> There's all these conveniences. He, he has all the things he lists that he, you know, nothing has any meaning anymore. He's kind of experienced it all. On the other hand, then there's wars and there's strife and he just wants to be done with the 20th century. He's completely happy to leave it behind him with no nostalgia whatsoever. It's, it's, uh, become, uh, just meaningless. Uh, you know, isn't, isn't that a situation we all find ourselves in? You know, we have these conveniences. We have our jobs. We have our careers. We have our relationships. We have our lives and, you know, but there's still wars and strife and we, we desperately want to find some meaning out of it. And if we can't find it here, why not go to the stars? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. Uh, I think what it's it is really just so fascinating. I think I and I like you bringing up, you know, the the search for meaning. Um, because I, I really I mean, what we get here, and, and I think this is something that was very big, of course, in the in the 60s and, of course, in the 70s of people looking for something more, right? Um, they and, and they didn't know where to find it. So you get people searching with drugs. Of course, you know, um, in the 60s, late 60s, too, you have the Jesus Revolution happening. Um, so, uh, but, and, and people are just searching for answers all over the place because I, I think you're absolutely correct in pinpointing modernity hadn't seen to answer our questions our you biggest know what it reminds me of it actually reminds me of breakfast at tiffany's <laughs> kind of the post-war decadence where there's parties and parties and parties and none of it seems to have any deep meaning whatsoever it's just you know ruthless commentary on the nihilism of, of modern life and that seems to be the world that that, that charlton heston wants to escape or taylor yeah no i i i agree um i i think calling out the idea of 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 him feeling as though he lives in a nihilistic world um, and trying to find a place or hoping that, you know, 700 years as he thinks they're going to land in the future that we would have maybe been able to find some answers to those questions. You know, there must be something in the air and it's got to be just be the culture of the late sixties counterculture and all the things that go along with it. Because, you know, this movie went head to head in the box office with 2001, a space odyssey. And in that mm -hmm. movie, there are also apes, <laughs> first of all, and you get this kind of, you know, what's man's place in the future kind of, kind of line of reasoning. How do we overcome the, you know, the, the boringness of the present that you see at the beginning of that movie. And, you know, there's almost uh, you know, I'm going to wax philosophical for a minute, but it's it's almost a Nietzschean element, you know, given the nihilism of contemporary life, how do you find subjective meaning that's actually meaningful in, in light of this objective meaninglessness? 
And the, it strikes me there's there's a parallel between, you know, not in the action of the plot of the movie, but in the sort of the subtext of uh, uh, man's place in the universe between this movie and, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And there are apes in both movies, <laughs> coincidentally. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I just... Uh... There's something that is so interesting, and I, I, I think, you know, like you said, bringing up 2001, and there really was something, I think, at this point in time where people were asking these questions, because I, th- and I do think you had kind of rightly pinpointed, the reason they were asking these questions is because modernity had made certain promises and was not, it basically had written a, a check its butt couldn't cash, right? Um, and, and it could lead to nuclear war on top of everything. Exactly. That, I mean, great point. And so, you know... It's the dark uh, and, underbelly of, of modernity here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and two, especially as, you know, we were seeing society and, and we are seeing the full repercussions of this now, of, of, you know, everything just becoming kind of relative, Um, you know, it, people were finding, I mean, less answers in that, right? And so... It just it's it's so fascinating because, you know, Taylor hoping that there's something more that would give him something, you know, kind of firm to hold on to uh, is just such a fascinating uh, thing to me, you know, and so um, I'm trying to get a handle on on what Taylor's personality is really like. I mean, we see him in the movie, of course, but, you know, I mean, this is something uh, a lot of people did in the 60s. They wanted to check out of society and they formed their own communes and cults. And, (laughs) you know, they went off into the woods and lived by themselves. And people did all kinds of crazy things to escape society in the 60s. Like, which kind of person is Taylor? I guess he's the kind of person to jump in a spaceship (laughs) and leave the whole planet. But, uh, you know, which which category of uh, subculture does does Taylor fall into if he had stayed on Earth? Yeah, I mean, I think... What's interesting is he seems to be the one who's willing to go out and like search for something more, you know, like to pray that he could find something more, which is interesting because, you know, as he comes back to Earth, he doesn't really seem to have been able to find that. Right. Um, Because they don't seem to have run into anything out there. And that's fascinating because as he comes back, you know, I think then his only hope is that, oh, please, Lord, or whatever's out there, let humanity have found some kind of answers while we've been gone. Because he doesn't seem to have found the answers, you know, in space. I think what I I like about the setup of the movie, I like, it happens in a lot of science fiction from the time period, like Isaac Asimov wrote stories like this, and Arthur C. Clarke wrote stories like this. Let's put a couple of guys in a spaceship and send them off and let's spend some time with them in the spaceship for a little bit, and then, you know, hijinks happen and and, uh, and whatnot, and you're off and running to the races for a story. But this is this typical, like, 1960s science fiction, you know, plot starting point. Let's put a couple guys on a spaceship, and they're on an adventure, and stuff happens to them. I think maybe it's for that reason that I find the plot a little dull in the movie. There's not much that actually happens in the movie. You know, it's a couple guys in a spaceship and then, you know, you have to kind of wait for the grand finale to get the to get the point. Um, it's I find that a little tedious, but interesting insofar as it falls right out of 1960s science fiction. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, we you kind of mentioned before that this movie does have a, a, some. There's so much to say about the idea of like kind of like facts and faith, right? Um, And this movie kind of puts right up front the idea of, you know, rejecting facts to promulgate an ideology. Uh, And humans never do that, right? Exactly. Um, Which I think is is so fascinating here because as I got to the end of the film – I realized that there's so much more to this, I think, than it just being um, a kind of sad one for one, you know, uh, creation uh, and a God versus like evolution. Right. Because it's it's what. Zayas says to him, which is that he's always known about humans And that humans were ruled by their emotions and that they had 
you know, been the destroyer of their own world. And so it it seemed to, to me as if the film was making a very interesting critique, uh, which was that apes and their religious beliefs are actually more a way of trying to learn from history, which is that they are trying to keep themselves from falling into their own worst impulses and destroying themselves. And that their religious observances and beliefs are what are allowing them to do that, which then leads to, I think, the the question that the film seems to be asking is our leaving behind of our, you know, religious mor- norms and morals actually what may lead to our destruction, which is, I think, the thing that makes this so fascinating and so much more than, you know, you could easily just point out and say like, oh, this is just religion versus like science. And that's I don't think that's quite what they're really going for. It's an interesting notion. Um, it's almost a notion of like uh, a dangerous truth. <laughs> they know the truth, but it's so dangerous they can't let that truth out because there's a danger that the apes will fall into the same pattern. But it has this kind of Gnostic quality to it. There's some sort of insider information that only the senior level apes get yes. to know. Yes, And, exactly. uh, you know, unless you're an insider and rise to a certain rank in their society, you're not privy to that information. Other than that, you get the you yeah. get the party line, you get the dog. Right. I think that's a great a pull. And, and it's absolutely, I think... Um, it, it's what what I love about it is that it's not simple, right? Um, you know, because I think that we could, you know, and we could absolutely go towards the idea of the fact that you know you sell um, people a religious idea as an opiate for the masses, right? Uh, and that that's the way you control them. And um, yeah, from eighteen hundreds onward, we've known that idea, right? Right. right. That mm-hmm. that th- that was the you know the the famous line. And I think instead having a a, a thought that um that we might have to deny you know logic um and facts or science. So that our faith can, you know, um, be upheld. Yeah, we can go that direction. And I think there's there's some interesting commentary that there because, you know, I think any faith that has to do those things isn't worth having, right? Um, and any ideology that has to do that overall doesn't even have to be religious. Just in general is something that is not worth having. Um, it strikes me, I know I keep mentioning Nietzsche, but it strikes me this is a good example of uh, you know Nietzsche's critique of religion as basically being a power play, right? Religion here is a power play for the senior level apes. I mean, it is a power play. But again, I don't know if it's a power play in the sense of that they just want power because they know this terrible truth. I feel like it's a little bit more than that. And so, and it, it I, I think... You know, as somebody of faith, I think what it does lead to is that the the question has to become, is there something then to the fact that that we used to be a people that would hold to a certain moral standard, a right and a wrong, coming from something um, beyond ourselves, which is exactly what Taylor's looking for, uh, and, you know, then really trying to suss that out as it is that true because you know i think again taylor as a character and his disillusionment kind of show that us trying to just figure it all out on our own isn't really working either you know so i think the movie to me becomes so much more complex than just you know these kind of base readings you can have and it really leads to i think some interesting like okay i've really got to wrestle with these questions now which are the biggest questions in world you know like the, the this is you're a philosopher and so this is this is exactly what makes philosophy go round i think the thing i found interesting um 
about this movie along those lines is that, you know, so this movie takes place, you know, was created in 1968. And one of the things sort of philosophically and culturally, not just philosophically across culture, across the board and architecture and art and every, every aspect of aesthetics in the, in the late sixties, postmodernism was all the rage, right? And one of the things that defines postmodernism is the fragmenting of, of what you might call language games. And for, you know, in Western culture for 1500, uh, you know, 1800 years, we had a pretty consistent language game. We had Christian theology <laughs> as the backdrop for, for, uh, for, uh, our culture. And that's almost every aspect of, of life was framed in terms of that worldview. And then in the sixties, especially you start getting just a radical fragmentation of, of language games and worldviews and alternative spiritualities and alternative theories of government. And there is not one common story we all had anymore. And I think we, to, to us nowadays, that sounds you know totally familiar. Like I've got yeah. my beliefs, you've got yours, I've got my spirituality, you've got yours. And what we've got in this movie is a fragmentation of the language games. We've got the ape's belief system, at least the party line version of it, the, you know, the ape theology <laughs> uh, dogma. I'm not sure exactly what term to use. And then we've got this competing, you know, language game and, you know, call it a belief system, but a, a competing way of describing reality, you know, call it evolutionary, call it whatever. And now you've got two completely different ways of describing not just what's true or not, but uh, an entire worldview. I mean, every aspect of life gets filtered through that. And this movie, I think, really drives home how radically incommensurable those really are. You know, when I hear Zayas uh, talk, he sounds really rational. He sounds coherent. You know, all of his terms match up together. It's largely a consistent worldview. doesn't happen to be true, <laughs> but it's largely consistent and sounds rational because of that consistency. And then, you know, when uh, when Taylor says anything he has to say about it, or even Cornelius or whomever else is talking in the movie, say in the context of the of the the um, called a court trial. I'm not sure what to call it. Hearing, um, you know, you you have this almost inability to to get on the same page because it's not just a matter of of weighing facts. It's that the worldviews themselves are incommensurable and they will never match up. Well, and I I think that's um you know that's such a a great point because too it kind of goes back to my whole point about you know any faith or ideology that's going to have to deny logic, fact, science is not worth having, right? And so when presented with facts and ideas that don't jive, um, they're not even willing to listen, right? Well, yeah, it's a, I, have a, I have a thought on that because, you know, what does anyone do? You know, you've got your belief system. You know, I, I think I understand yours largely because you and I were raised very similar. I, I, yeah, I think mine is probably slightly different at this point, but I think we can probably talk intelligently about it. So, you know, suppose you have a worldview. You've got a bunch of things you believe, right? You know, some of those, some of your beliefs are really, really core to your worldview and some things are more periphery. And if you encounter something that doesn't match your worldview, what do you do? There's nothing that says you have to reject it. You can reject it. You can accept it. You can try to modify some of your beliefs. You know, if it conflicts with something that's really, really core to your worldview, you're probably more likely to reject it. If it conflicts with something that's on the periphery of your worldview, you might modify some of your periphery beliefs. And there's nothing that tells you, I mean, all of those things are rational. <laughs> there's nothing that tells you what you have to do with that piece of evidence that doesn't match, right? You Maybe your worldview is wrong. Maybe the piece of evidence is wrong. Maybe you just need to modify your worldview a little bit. Maybe your core f assumptions are totally wrong. Any of those things are all rational possibilities. So I think, you know, I, I think simplistically saying, oh, here's a new piece of information. I better accept it. That's probably a vast oversimplification of how worldviews right, work. Right, right. Well, and I, I think... The other thing, too, is that, you know, they're not willing to hear any of the ideas. I think, you know, that there's a big difference between um, wrestling with new thoughts or ideas and, and just shutting just, them down entirely. Exactly. Completely yeah. shutting them down uh, and rejecting yeah. them out of hand, you know. And again, I really, I, I, you know, if you're if your faith can't be challenged in any way, you probably don't have a faith worth having. You know, um, because faith shouldn't be irrational or illogical or any of those things. And so, I mean, I being a person of faith, none of my faith is because I don't think very deeply about it. Right. Um, you know, and so and, you know, it, it's interesting you were bring you brought up, um, you know, the idea of like, you know, having this consistent kind of worldview, mostly throughout a lot of the world and thought and. You know, um, Tom Holland wrote a great book about that called Dominion, uh, about, you know, having this kind of core set of beliefs for so long 
in the world. And then that fragmentation that's happened, as you mentioned, but that fragmentation is still built on these core beliefs and so much of what people still hold to. If you were to trace it back logically as to thought process and where it comes from, it's like it comes from this kind of Judeo-Christian center, um, which is interesting because even the apes and their their religious thought, a lot of it kind of has a, a pseudo, you know, um, Christian type of sound to it. Um, we don't get to explore it a lot in this film, but the little bit that they do, it's so it, like you, it just all of this and this find so fascinating, right? It, because like this is it, it, and I think it just really goes to show that especially in this turbulent time period of the the late 60s, very early 70s, what people were wrestling with inside, you know, and what our culture at large was wrestling with. In every way, you know, not just yeah, about evolution, exactly. but every every exactly. aspect of ethics and politics and our yes. entire society yep. went through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. So, well, and, and the other thing that, you know, and you called this out a little bit earlier, but one of the things that we see here is this kind of, you know, you need to, you got to keep them separated, right? You know, um, mm-hmm. the apes have, have created this kind of caste system based off of the type of ape that they are, right? You've got your orangutans, your chimpanzees, and your gorillas. Mm-hmm. And the three don't really mix. Um, and, you know, you're, you're kind of pigeonholed into being a certain thing, based off of something you can't control. And um, I I just thought that this was so fascinating because it is a very pointed commentary as to, you know, the racial strife that we had specifically at that time period. Um, And by putting people into categories based off of immutable traits that they can't change, right? their skin color um, and then being able to treat people a certain way or to other people because of that as well. I think what I found really familiar about that aspect of the film, you and I have talked about this before in other contexts when we've talked about Star Trek in Star Trek, the aliens are the humans. They have, they're the ones with all the, all the flaws that modern day humans have. Right. And that's, what's going on here. You know, you, you, you take a setting like this, you put it in outer space well, on earth, but <laughs> let's, let's pretend it's in outer space. You make it about apes, not about humans. And of course the apes have all the flaws the modern humans do. And in the 1960s and arguably again today, sadly, racism is a problem. So, you know, these apes are just outright racist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is this is direct commentary on, on race relations in the 1960s, I think. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I also think, you know, it, it's interesting because there seemed to also, there seemed to be a, a pointed commentary just as well about the way that we treat lower life forms or things that we can, would consider lower life forms. And I was just thinking about the, the you know, the, I think that humanity as a whole does not have necessarily always the best track record in the way that we deal with um, different species on our planet, you know? Well, and, in, in, in Christian theology, the, 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 canonical view is that humans are a special creation, right? Humans are the ones made in God's image and humans are the ones with rights and humans are the ones with ethics as opposed to everything else in the natural world, which doesn't have those properties, right? Right. I mean, even like Descartes thought that animals were just clever machines and you could, you know, there's this funny story about him throwing a dog into a fire and he's saying, look how clever of a machine it is. It looks just, it acts exactly like it's in pain. (laughs) Like there's no empathy whatsoever for any kind of lower, Mm -hmm. lower life form. That's not always, always true in the history of the world, of course, but I think the, the, the canonical line is that that humans are a special creation only we have rights and that's what you can see the apes saying oh you're only a man you don't have rights and by extension right. we might say now what about animal rights you know doesn't yeah. do yeah do you know rights uh not to be researched on in uh in, in uh some sort mm-hmm. of scientific inquiry but yeah you know but th- but those were new for again fairly new concepts in the 60s right these you know now they're really familiar to us we've had 60 years of that kind of language but the whole notion mm-hmm. of animal rights that wasn't in the vocabulary until fairly recently yeah Although, and and for me personally, I would just argue that that the idea that just because we're the only ones made in God's image, like you know, the second command in 
in scripture to any, you know, to Adam and Eve at that point is they are not only to be fruitful, multiply, but they are to take care of and steward what they've been given. And so I would argue that, you know, what we see here, the apes doing is, yes, they say, oh, you're this, so therefore you don't have any rights, but that they're also negating then the call to be good stewards of what they've been given. And I don't so know. They mis- put them in a cage and feed them. What exactly. more do they need, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, um, but I mean, uh, mistreating or 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 f- just because it would, you know, be wrong. And so I just, I, I, to me, it was something that I was really fascinated to see the way in which I think um, that is handled here in this film and again, their rationale for it being, I think, just completely wrong. Um, There's almost you know, a colonial quality to it, you know. Think of think of the you know expansion of the of uh, empires in Western Europe into the rest of the world, you know. And then they, what happens is they encounter difference, right? Okay, you get to Africa and you go, okay, what about these dark skinned folks? Human? Question mark? <laughs> right? Are they are they really on par with us or not? Um, what about the what about those uh, you know tribal people over in the in the New World? Human, not human. We don't really know, right? <laughs> you know, it's not obvious that difference should be respected as human. At least it is to us now, but you know, historically, it hasn't always been. And so there, there's this kind of weird, you know, colonial quality. Like you know, even within the, within the different types of apes, there seems to be some sort of hierarchy. You know, obviously, humans have some ape-like qualities, but hum, you know, are they? Do, should they have ape rights or don't not have ape rights? And it, you know, the, it's. A fairly superficial uh, discussion of those things, but I think uh, I'm fascinated by, you know, I mean, in the history of the world, this is what's happened, right? We encounter difference and we don't always respect it as equal. Well, and I, I mean, I think, too, uh, the saddest part about that is is the way in which I, I really think that that is a misunderstanding, too, of my belief system in the sense that, like, if if all human beings are made in God's image, therefore they are all human beings deserve respect and and honor, um, regardless of how different they are from us, right? And so that's one of those things where here again apes twist this in this in this film to be mm-hmm. able to to they they allow themselves the ability to be the uh lord and master in a way that disrespects anything else because it's not us and um from you know the fact that you know we ha- we have human beings here right but also even just the those that they they like they treat their horses better than they do man <laughs> you know and part of that though just actually becomes i think something that makes this uh, a more nuanced conversation in the sense that they keep them separated because they also know what man has done right um those in power know what man has done and 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 how it almost destroyed this entire planet and so there's this whole other side to why they're doing what they're doing which i think kind of gets overlooked in the conversation it doesn't make it right, but I do think it makes it more understandable. I think one of the things I appreciated about the way man is depicted in in the film, I mean, if we're talking about this movie being representative of the dark underbelly of modernity, you know, this is, you know, you might say man is the most civilized of creatures. Look at all the things we can build. Look at all the culture we can create. Look at all the theological concepts. Look at all the things man can achieve. But really, at heart, we're still savage <laughs> in some sense. And depicting man as explicitly as a savage again is uh, is on the nose, I think. Well, and I, I think that is. I think that is such an I mean, of course, that's such a f- interesting philosophical question, right? Um, because uh, the question of whether or not, you know, and this is a whole other podcast, so we're not going to be able to discuss it here, but whether or not you're humanity is actually a savage or not is a massive philosophical question. Oh yeah. It's like the difference between like Rousseau's view of humankind is fundamentally good, you know, versus, versus Hobbes's view of, you know, the state of nature being nasty, brutish and short, you know. And what's interesting is that 
in, for both of them, those are rooted in a naturalistic uh, theology, basically, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that everything is, is just of the natural world. And so, um, but uh, again, I think... A, well, one it's, of the, it's an interesting question, though, because what happens yeah. when, you, when you take away all of the, you know, comforts of modernity, when you take away all of the political power or any other kind of power that mankind has, and you make them subjugated to the apes in this case, what kind of human society would emerge if we were thrown back into the state of nature that way? It's an interesting question about about the fundamental yeah. parts of human nature that yep. the film depicts in some sense. Yes. Uh, I know. I mean, I 100% agree. It's, it's actually one of the things that I think would have been a little bit more interesting to have been able to explore in some way. Uh, but, you know, there's there's only so much you can do. In but it has film. to be a Charlton Heston movie. So it can't, right. Can't it's about there, him. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, it, we realize, of course, by the end of the movie that humanity is its own worst enemy. Um, you know, that we had become death, the destroyer of worlds. And I found this part also really fascinating um, because of what Zaya said, and I referenced it earlier, that humans had become ruled completely by their emotions, and it had led to their destruction. And I found this to be actually more pointed commentary to where we are now in society than even when this movie came out, uh, because I found that I that our society seems to be one uh, that is completely ruled more by emotions than anything else. It's it's complete emotionalism is is a taken over, which yeah, actually emotion makes being me, the kind of measure of truth itself, yep, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. which uh, you know leaves me slightly more terrified. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, uh, given that, it's no wonder that that fascism is on the rise in some sense, right? I mean, you know, if 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 people are fundamentally not rational and they're fundamentally emotional, then why would we let them govern themselves? I mean, the, there's an, there's an easy slippery slope to a uh, fascist uh, government, uh, or and uh, and and the kind of thing you see in ape society here. You know, there people are the average ape or the average human in our case might be too dumb to rule themselves. Well, and I, I mean, I don't. I guess I wouldn't. Plato have, said as much, right? I mean, yeah, I well, Plato, of course, Plato wants the philosopher king, um, and so, but I, I think that I think the thing that I I don't it's not that that I'm finding the most dangerous or terrifying. It's just the fact that when when one is ruled only by emotion and logic just flies out the window, um, then you know. We are actually throwing out what what I you know the world is, which you know everything runs by you know when we look at scientifically we we see that there are, are rules to nature, there are laws, you know that there is a logical thought process to everything, so that when we negate logic um, for only emotion. Um, then we are throwing out a balance where we would need to be. In the same way, I mean, Star Trek, I think, does a great job of this, right? And in the wrestling of Spock, right? The, the logical side and the emotional side. It's, it's not one or the other. It's both and. And I think, to me, that's the thing that this, this movie, uh, I feel like, is speaking specifically more towards where we are now than it you know, where the movie was even then, which is to say, you can't just have one. You have to have both. Otherwise, you don't have the balance that's needed. And that imbalance is what creates us being the destroyer of all our world. So give me the chain of reasoning. So humans are too emotional and, and then they destroy themselves. What, how, how does, how does, how do the dots connect there? I mean, I, I could see power being 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 a problem, right? You know, but, but why? So, why well, I mean, you why just do think emotions lead to the destruction of the you know or humans? Well, because being if you're only if you're only driven by emotions, you're going to be making an you're going to emotionally react to a situation instead of also with logic, which is where the whole idea of like mutually assured destruction came in, right? Is that we are a species that wants to survive. So if uh, that's the case and we can both destroy each other, we won't. That's where the logic comes in. Mm -hmm. But if you react only on emotion, 
somebody's going to press the button because it's an emotional reaction, not a logical reaction. Therefore, you must have the temperance of both together. Does that make that sense? Seems a, a complete and total lack of foresight, too. I mean, uh, I mean, well, of course, but human, that's humans, what emotion most does. Most humans can't right? see past their nose, right? right? So, <laughs> what happens well, I mean, if we made it make a bunch of nuclear weapons? Someone might actually use them, right? Well, and I mean, just think about it, too, though. I mean, the, why do we have crimes of passion? Because we allow um, emotion to take over, and it it negates the logical part of our brain. And so, I I, I think that's the thing that really just stuck struck me so much about this this um film. one of the things i liked was the kind of i would call it a stoic thread you know like um i think taylor says at one point you know everything you knew is gone and uh it's, it's all dust <laughs> at some point i forget when in the when in the film he says that but you know uh, so much for the rewards of ambition right you know you work on your projects i work on mine you work on your career i work on mine and you know a thousand years from now two thousand years from now ten thousand years from now it's not going to mean squat right why do, why yeah. do we focus on things that are so unimportant well, it it also, I think, leads to the very disillusionment that, you know, we talked about Taylor having, right? If if nothing really matters, then what matters, you know? Um, because human beings need meaning and purpose. Could we, be relationships. I mean, you know, he develops this proto-relationship with Nova and seems to get some satisfaction out of it. True. It could be. Um, and yet, in the end, that will still lead to nothing because it won't matter in 700 years. So, I mean, again, the question always persists. Like, if there there is no meaning and there's really no purpose because nothing matters, I mean, that's the, the whole Nietzschean question, right? So... Um, I mean, the irony of ironies is that we're, you know, we already have paradise, right? Look at all the look at all the comforts we have and look at all the, the good things we've built in society. And, you know, we, we take it for granted and uh, you, know, you don't see it till it's gone. You know? We don't we don't yeah. recognize that we already have the paradise that we've been striving for. You you mentioned uh, on the outline, I thought this was interesting, too, just talking about our, our characters and their acting. And of course, most of the film is spent with Charlton Heston. And uh, but then, of course, we have the 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 actors behind the makeup um and i think all doing incredible jobs to create characters behind this very difficult makeup i mean this is much different than what we have today um yeah their voices have to carry carry the work to, yeah. to a great extent yeah well and mm -hmm. and the movement of their faces has to be so exaggerated to make the the prosthetics move and and to give them any kind of realism and and so yeah, it's a caricature yeah they, exactly that's, the, ape, the apes are caricatures yeah. to some extent they have to move like caricatures and but um, yeah, what did you think of Charlton Heston? You know, you I, you had put on the outline as well, uh, Linda Harrison, who's Nova, and you know she doesn't get to talk at all during the film. Um, and you know, our our ape characters, uh, did any of them stand out to you? Um, did it work for you? You know, I, I have to tell my Charlton Heston story. I have a Charlton Heston story. When I was in, when I was in uh, in high school, I had a calculus teacher, uh, trigonometry actually, excuse me, and. Uh, there was a uh, in, in trigonometry, there's this principle uh, sine squared plus cosine squared equals one. And it's so it's such a foundational concept, like it was sent down with, you know, from God on the on the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it's, it's so important. And it's so such a necessary law of mathematics. And he called it Heston's identity because it was so important. It's like Charlton Heston carried it down from the top of the mountain <laughs> on the tablets. <laughs> so every time I see I see Charlton Heston, I, I immediately think of that. It's just a, a funny little anecdote. But I like Charlton Heston. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I have much to say about it. I mean, I think you get exactly what you'd expect out of Charlton Heston in this role. Uh, it's one of his best roles, I think. Um, but I was particularly impressed with, I'm sorry, I, I forget the actress's name. Remind me, Nova. Um, uh, Linda Harrison. But I was particularly impressed with Linda Harrison's portrayal of Nova. I mean, it's it's hard to act without saying any words. And, you know, you have to let your facial expressions and body language carry it all. And I thought she had an incredible ability, ability to emote silently. And that's, that's a rare quality that anyone has. I, I just mm -hmm. was particularly impressed with her. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it's interesting because she's dating Zanuck uh, here. Uh, and which is, you know, the reason that she gets the role. And... It was really interesting to hear uh, in the behind the scenes that uh, I was watching. She talked about how, you know, she hadn't really done a ton of acting, but she put a lot of thought into the the process of this character and, and the fact that, you know, she felt like she would act more animistically because there's 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 not a lot of like what we would consider humanity in her. 
Um, everything is more instinct and it's more with those just kind of animal instincts, right? And so, so much of what she's doing, I think, is and one of the reasons it works is because she's really able to, I think, portray that so well. So I, I liked you calling her out there. Um, you know, I think you know, Charlton Heston does a great job here because he's also playing against type. Uh, you know, he's such the character, you know, we're so used to seeing him as like, Ben Hur or Moses, you know, mm-hmm. and here he's not necessarily the good guy. Uh, he's this cynical, like frustrated man that it's, it, you know, at the beginning of the film is a little bit hard to root for. I, I think until, you know, we realize that he's kind of fighting for the entire human race. In fact, you know, the most interesting part about this is he becomes a man who left, he becomes the man who left the world to get away from humanity that becomes their only, you know, savior in the end, right? Like, he's the only one who has a hope of of trying to save humanity in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and I think he just does all of that well. And then... I think the gruffness of his voice is such a good fit for that cynical uh, attitude (laughs) that you described. And because of that, he takes on this kind of everyman quality. He's the kind of guy that's going to curse at things. And at the end of the movie, he's the guy that says, damn, you stupid, whatever. (laughs) Look what you did to, you know, to this paradise that we had. You know, someone needs to say, you know, how stupid you are. Charlton Heston's such a good fit for that. No, I 100% agree. And, you know, I think... I think every uh, choice that they made with uh, the apes works perfectly, uh, and they did such a good job here. And I I think that's one of the things we have to talk about here is that, you know, the makeup and the effects are something which revolutionized uh, filmmaking. I mean, uh, John Chambers uh, came in, he had created Mr. Spock's ears, uh, and what he does here. Uh, he actually receives an honorary Oscar for because of his work. And I think it's fascinating to me to watch this film now. Uh, and I'm watching it, you know, on a 4K television. And, and it's impressive how well this makeup still holds up, even on that screen. I didn't watch the special features for this film um, just for time reasons, but I, I in the past I'd watched the special features on my copy of 2001: A Space Odyssey, and, and I uh, remember hearing that the folks who works on the worked on the apes in 2001: A Space Odyssey were particularly disappointed that they, that their apes didn't win <laughs> when when you know you had two movies that were functionally had the same kind kind of makeup, and uh, you know uh, uh, Planet of the Apes got all the press about that, and uh, the, the folks that worked on the 2001 version of the apes were were just disappointed. Well, and they have a it's, favorite? Yeah. which, which, apes you know, do you like I think, better? I think it's different because, you know, those apes are literally, you're, you're trying literally to get apes, yeah. to make them look like apes, you know, and here, you know, you are trying to merge the idea of a more humanoid ape. And so I think that the work here that they're having to do is much more difficult. It's much, I think, easier to try and create man in an ape costume that looks more realistic than it is to try and create what they're doing here uh, especially with um i mean i mean just i even think of the way that they're trying having to try and make their mouths work and you know it it's just it's it's a real testament to john chambers work you know and you know we all you know nobody questions mr spock's ears and part of that i think is just because of how good they look Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he does such a great job here. And, you know, I think all the other effects work here too. I mean, even just creating the end where you see the Statue of Liberty there. I think that's, you know, that's a lot of, that's matte work and them um, uh, creating a scale version of the crown on like a 70 foot platform so they can get that crane shot. You know, and putting all that together, I think that works still. And now we so take for well. granted that you can do that kind of thing. Imagine having yes. to do that practically. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Such a great, yeah, it's such great work. So, um, one last thing I really wanted to ask you about too, because, you know, we both know Jerry Goldsmith from his Star Trek work. And uh, his work here is incredibly different from that. And so I wanted to ask you how you felt like that worked here in this movie, because it's 
quite experimental. I think the thing that really works for me is that, in fact, I didn't put two and two together until I, I started doing a little research. I remember um, I, I queued up the movie and I put it on in the intro to me. I said, that sounds a lot like the Twilight Zone, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the intro music to the Twilight Zone. And then to find out Rod Serling wrote the screenplay, of course, <laughs> made it all come together. But to me, uh, I thought it worked well because it was supposed to sound Twilight Zone-ish. And I, I think that that's what it evoked for me. I think it was really successful. Did, did you get that sense when you watched it? Uh one hundred percent. I'm glad that you called that out. Um, I, I think not only does it feel like the Twilight Zone, but I think the other thing that he's able to do by by using all these different types of instruments. I mean, he uses a lot of strange instruments in this. Mm-hmm. I think strange what he's a- and, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and he creates this very off kilter kind of tribalistic sound to it, which is off putting. Which is exactly well, what yeah, you, you don't, need. You don't in want this it to film. sound like it's too Earth like, right? You know, yes. <laughs> they're really trying yes. to drive home the point that this is in space, this is in space, this is in space, so they can save the the you know, yes. the, uh, the final scene yep. for the very end and not spoil it in any way, shape, or form, even with the music. Yeah, one hundred percent. And mm-hmm. so I think everything that they're doing there in that sense is successful. Uh, and I, I think it's a, it's a great job. And, and there so, was just so much experimental music in the sixties in general, yes. uh, you know, film score and otherwise, and this, this is a great example of it. Alternative instruments and weird cadences and yeah. Uh, you know, I, I actually didn't realize, uh, cause you're, you're much, I can tell you're much more the, the film researcher than I am. And you like, you like the deep dives into the, into the composers and the, the, the screenwriters and whatnot. And I just don't follow the film industry as much. I actually didn't realize it was Jerry Goldsmith until you put it in the notes. And I was, I was really surprised because it didn't sound like the rest of his work to me. Yeah. And, and I think it's one of those neat things when you, uh, begin to kind of pay attention to, uh, especially soundtracks and you, and you see the, the breadth and the range that these guys can have. Um, and yeah, this one is uh, completely different. So was there anything else that stood out to you in the, in the score? Uh, you know, for me, it's the intro that, that, that I found the most memorable. Was there any other moments in the score that you found particularly, uh, memorable? I think that it fits really well with the hunt sequence. Um, Mm -hmm. that is such a kind of terrifying sequence. Uh, and I think it's done the, the music accentuates the terrified nature of, you know, our three men, our, our three astronauts and their fear. Uh, and as is the, the fear of just the human beings that are being herded. Right. And so I think to me, that's one of the places that really stands out. Um, and I like that a lot. So I, I was thinking as I was watching the watching the film that uh, I, I I really like that there's several movies like this. I think 2001 is, is also a movie like this. There are movies where there's not a lot of dialogue in certain sections of it, it really is the, the music and the mood and the and the action carrying the film. Yep. Yep. And you might go five minutes with nothing being said. <laughs> and this movie gets away with that because of the music, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. I, find, I just remember that I, I like that kind of that kind of film style. You don't get it a lot nowadays. Yeah, I mean, gosh, the only movie I can think of that does that uh, was Wally. Uh, recently, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it very much that. So, well, talking through this, I am fascinated to see where you are going to land on your ratings because it. I think one of the most interesting things of doing this is you know when you can have such in depth discussions about a film uh, and and everything. Uh, sometimes it can have an impact on on what you think of the film or what you might rate it. So, what would you rate Planet of the Apes? Yeah, it's it's hard to say because it is a classic, and you you know, and it, it was groundbreaking in a great many ways. So it it should get some some accolades for that, and I think we've we've given the accolades. I still find it not particularly enjoyable enjoyable to watch. I find it a little tedious to get through, and I I, I don't think my opinion about that has changed in in, in rewatching it. Uh, I am impressed with the depth of the dialogue in the movie in a way that uh, that you and I have drawn out. Um, but I still think the movie doesn't really work for me. I think there are movies in the same genre that I think are more interesting and, and more entertaining and more more groundbreaking in other ways. So I'm gonna have to give this a, a lower rating than you might think, given its classic role. I'm gonna give it. Uh, Three out of five spikes on the Statue of Liberty. 
Nice, nice. Okay. That, I mean, when you were saying low, I was thinking it, it might be lower than that, but I, I, I can understand that, especially if that's it's low just for not. Me. Yeah, that, that's yeah, a D, it, right? 60%. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if it, it's just being a film that doesn't, I mean, but it's above average still, you know, mm-hmm. three out of five. So, um, you know, for me, this is a four out of five. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's not my favorite movie or anything, but I do think that there's so much about it that, you know, when I think of its classic status one of the reasons that is the case is is because of what this is able to to do for the film industry as much as it is um for anything else and so and i i think as well the the performances here are very good i i think you know there's there's a lot to like about the discussions that can be had about it and i think it's a good movie in that sense and i would i would suggest you know zach that you know, if this wasn't quite your speed, I think the three recent films that they did, you would actually very much enjoy. Because not only are the discussions there great, but those movies are just really phenomenal films. And I felt like only got better. Uh, and so I, I I absolutely think that you should check those out. Because I, I really do think that you would you'd love them. I think I'll cer- I'll certainly watch them. And I think one of the things that 2001 gets credit for, it gets credit for being a science fiction movie that's taken seriously. And I think this is a great example of, of science fiction being reinvigorated. This is a science fiction movie that people can take seriously that has a lot to say as well. Yeah, no, I agree. So, well, Zach, you know, people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on these days. Uh, where would they find you? Yeah, the, there's really the best two places. You can find me on Twitter. My t- Twitter handle is just my name, at Zachary Fruling. Uh, you can also follow me on my blog. About uh, On my blog, I tend to write a lot about philosophy because I'm a philosopher, but I write about some film there as well. That's just ZacharyFruling.com. Those are the two best places to find me. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, of course, you could find me all over the place on social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero are the places I am most active. Uh, of course, you can also find me all over the place uh, on the network. I've got Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, which is coming back because Strange New Worlds is right around the corner, and then The Artificial Tango, talking about Star Trek Picard, and then you'll find me over on the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. One is Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, as we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, and then, of course, you'll find me with Aggressive Negotiations and John Mills talking about Star Wars. But... Thank you so much for joining us and get your filthy paws off me, you damn dirty ape. (laughs) 